Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. We're headed to the home stretch of football season and basketball is in full swing. And BetOnline remains the number one spot for all the action this year. Head to the new updated desktop or mobile website to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Use the promo code BLEAVE50, B-L-E-A-V-50, to receive your bonus. BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to bet all of your favorite sports. BetOnline, where the game starts. However and whenever it is you may be listening, thank you for stopping into another fantabulous episode of Wired Up. This is Wired Up episode 98. Hope you enjoyed the new music that we had for Wired Up here. I like to change it up every now and then with these podcasts, and since we're only Two Wired Ups away from 100 Wired Ups. We're going to hit that, I think, on Christmas. I think Christmas Day is going to be Wired Up number 100. And uh, since we're that close to Wired Up number 100, thought we'd change up the music a little bit. Also, I just had time on Saturday because I wasn't watching any college football or watching the Heisman Trophy ceremony that was totally meaningless. I was actually doing things with my life. It's quite interesting when you do such things. So... Anyways, make sure to download, leave a five-star review on this podcast. We appreciate each and every one of you who are stopping in for the first time in the history of the Take It Easy podcast, 800 episodes of the Take It Easy podcast, and for the first time in the history of the podcast, we are going to talk about Formula One here today on the podcast. But we're not going to actually like do Formula One analysis. We're going to talk about the macro idea and the macro concept of society at large and the sports world at large in relation to Formula One. We're not going to do X's and O's breakdown of Formula One here. So we'll get to that in a little bit here. I want to start off with uh, a segment we do on this podcast every now and then, and especially on Wired Up. We've done this a number of times. It's a segment I like to call Reading. And reading is an interesting way to give commentary on a topic that is really well done and with well done journalism behind it. And the story for this week in reading is Tom Pelissero's report on the Jacksonville Jaguars. And if you're paying attention to the NFL, you've probably seen the report going around uh, some of the you know glossier details of the Jacksonville Jaguars situation. And it's not like a long form report by. Tom Pelissero. It's it's one of these insidery types like Adam Schefter and Ian Rappaport or Woj or Shams where the accompanying journalism is more so just a, a format for the story that they're telling. And so Tom Pelissero, who's employed by the NFL, uh, puts out this report with some details around the toxicity of the Urban Meyer situation with like real reporting and journalism behind it. It just happens to be uh, he's employed by the NFL and the NFL Network, so there's obviously compromising parties there. But he is reporting on the NFL, and this is a very well-done report about 
Tensions boiling over between Urban Meyer and Jaguars players and their staff amid a 2-10 and start to this season. We'll talk about this a little bit more, but what I find interesting is that only in dysfunction do the Jaguars come into focus. We were joking about this with Stripe Hype back on uh, on Wednesday this week. We had a Stripe Hype Wednesday this week when we did 20 minutes of James Robinson trade talks, which was the Jaguars become relevant at this point in the season through dysfunction when their season has been over for six to eight weeks. Like going back to October, the Jaguars season was over. Trevor Lawrence's development is totally stunted. We have no idea whether he's a good quarterback or not in the NFL. Daryl Bevel should have, could have, would have been fired eight weeks ago in all of our analysis on NFL Monday and memes of the weekend is just fire Daryl Bevel. That's all the Jaguars analysis we've done. It's trade James Robinson and fire Daryl Bevel. That's all we've been talking about from just a meaningless 2-10 season from the Jaguars. The Jaguars play the 49ers a few weeks ago. Doesn't matter that the 49ers have a 13-minute drive that ends in a field goal. They're still going to score 30 points because the Jaguars are just so bad. And Urban Myers obviously been in the headlines going back to the start of the season when he brings in Tim Tebow. He hires Chris Doyle. Uh, he has the, obviously the situation with the woman in his bar where he is grinding on her. And I don't know why I said this, like someone who is repressed. Yeah. Urban Meyer was grinded on a girl and his, someone snitched on him. And then he ended up making it a bigger deal than it was because he called it stupid and then didn't face the team for two days in his mistake, which then creates a leadership vacuum. And everyone assumed Urban Meyer was going to get fired because all of this was falling apart. Not to mention also playing Travis Etienne extra in a preseason game and getting hurt. Not that that one was totally Urban Meyer's fault. Injuries happened, but his first round pick got hurt in training camp in a preseason game. So all of that to say, we all thought Urban Meyer was going to get fired. And then about a few weeks ago, we kind of became resigned to the fact that the Jaguars weren't going to fire Urban Meyer. And so we just stopped talking about how dysfunctional the Jaguars organization was for about two months because this happens, uh, especially in the NFL draft coverage. I mean, it happened last year with the Jaguars, is that when we know something is going to be so, we just stop talking about it. For example, the Heisman Trophy. The ceremony was on Saturday. Did I talk about it in the week before? No, I did not. Did we talk about it afterwards? No, I did not because... We knew Bryce Young was going to win. It was a formality. The Heisman Trophy ceremony doesn't really matter. In the NFL draft, once we knew Zach Wilson was going to be the number two pick three weeks before the draft, we just stopped trying to critique Zach Wilson's flaws. And all of the rookie quarterbacks haven't been great this year, but it might have served us better if we critiqued Zach Wilson's flaws a little bit deeper. Part of it's the Jets being terrible, and part of Trevor Lawrence's stunted development is the Jaguars being terrible. It's why... Mac Jones looks like the best of the rookie class, even as he looks unremarkable, because a lot of these bad franchises, the Jaguars, the Jets, the Bears, are ruining their rookie quarterbacks because they're poorly run organizations. But once we feel like we have something set in stone, we stop talking about it. So we stop talking about how dysfunctional the Urban Meyer situation was because we were resigned to the fact that no matter what he did, he was still going to be the coach next year. Which brings us to Tom Pelissero, basically recapping what's happened in the last six weeks since we stopped talking about Urban Meyer and his uh, his <laughs> getting snitched on at his own bar for grinding with a girl about half his age, or at least, you know, 
at least 20 years less his age and then basically ignoring uh, ignoring his players and avoiding them in team meetings for two days and then the players doing a huddle at the end of practice where they go one, two, three, grind and then all of them just breaking down laughing at the end making fun of Urban Meyer where there's just no respect for the leadership there and not, by the way, not earned either. Urban Meyer has not earned the respect of leadership there but there just is an absence of respect and when you've lost the locker room at that point, we assume that it will lead to Urban Meyer's firing. But this is the Jaguars. They don't run things very well. So Tom Pelissero recapping what happened in the last week with the Jackson or the last three, four, five weeks with the Jaguars. Quote, months of tension surrounding Jaguars coach Urban Meyer has boiled over with multiple run ins with players and other coaches in recent weeks. Sources say renewing questions in league circles about whether Meyer's stay in Jacksonville could end after just one tumultuous season. At this point, there are no signs that Jaguars owner Shad Khan is seriously considering a change, as we'd kind of assumed over the past five weeks. That was me ad-libbing there. Back to the story. One of the NFL's most patient and supportive owners, okay, Khan dreamed for years of Meyer, a three-time college national champion at Florida and Ohio State, coaching his team and overhauling the culture of a franchise accustomed to losing before finally luring him out of retirement in January. I did not know that Shad Khan had wanted to hire Urban Meyer for years, going back to the Doug Marone days when he was tearing apart the team. That is quite interesting. I was unaware of this. Uh, Back to the story. But sources say Meyer's repeated public comments shifting blame to players and coaches amid the 2-10 season have exacerbated frustration in the building with his hard-charging and sometimes condescending approach, a style that many observers believed wouldn't work in the NFL even before the Jaguars hired him. Entering Sunday's visit to Tennessee, the Jaguars have lost four games in a row and five of, the, five of six since their Week 7 bye, averaging just 10.7 points per game in that span. One of their best players, running back James Robinson, was benched last week under clouded circumstances. Franchise quarterback Trevor Lawrence, who had shown flashes of why Jacksonville selected him number one, is completing just 58% of his passes for 2,514 yards, 9 touchdowns, and 10 interceptions. And while the Jaguars opted not to fire Meyer in September after he stayed in Ohio instead of taking the team plane after a week 4 loss to the Bengals, only to be captured in viral videos at a bar with a young woman, not his wife, dancing close to his lap, sources say Meyer hasn't adjusted his approach. In the past two weeks alone, sources say receiver Marvin Jones, one of the locker room's most respected and mild-mannered veterans, became so angry with Meyer's public and private criticism of the receiving group that he left the facility until other staff members convinced him to come back and he had a heated argument with Meyer during practice. Ad-libbing here, this is me coming back in instead of the story, never heard of something like this with him, with again, someone well-respected and mild-mannered leaving and then getting into a spat. Usually these things don't get reported with the head coach and one of the, the leaders in the locker room like that, where it seems like there's animosity and not so much out of doing better. Back to the story. Two, during a staff meeting, Meyer delivered a biting message that he's a winner and his assistant coaches are losers, according to several people informed of the contents of the meeting, challenging each coach individually to explain when they'd ever won and and forcing them to defend their resumes. Three, 
Contrary to his public statements that it was injury-related, Meyer ordered Robinson's benching after an opening drive fumble in the 37-7 loss against the Rams. Then had running backs coach Bernie Pomley stop Robinson from re-entering the game, insisting Carlos Hyde, who played for Meyer at Ohio State, stay in the game. Only after Trevor Lawrence questioned Meyer on the sidelines about Robinson's absence was Robinson allowed to return late in the second quarter. Speaking to reporters this week, Lawrence said, quote, Bottom line is James is one of our best players and he's got to be on the field and we addressed it. And I feel like we're in a good spot and the whole team. We're good. Several Jaguars players vented their frustration to the Rams players after that game, sources said, reiterating a common complaint that Meyer, who had no prior NFL experience, doesn't treat them like adults. And the staff meeting follows a pattern of tense interactions between Meyer and his assistants dating back to the offseason. After opening the preseason with consecutive losses, for instance, sources say Meyer informed assistants that he was sick of being embarrassed and if the team didn't start winning immediately, some of them wouldn't be around for a second year. There have been staff turnovers since Meyer arrived in January for a variety of reasons. Meyer's hand-picked strength and conditioning coach, Chris Doyle, resigned under pressure in February after renewed focus on his allegations of racial remarks that had led to Doyle's separation agreement at the University of Iowa in 2020. Special teams coordinator Brian Schneider took a leave of absence for personal reasons and did not return in May. Meyer's chief of staff, Fernando Lovo, left the team last month and returned to the University of Texas. Tight ends coach Tyler Bowen is expected to become offensive coordinator at Virginia Tech, according to college sports and recruiting site On3.com. And more staff changes are expected after the season, even assuming Meyer stays. There have been other missteps. In July, the NFL fined the Jaguars $200,000 and Meyer $100,000 for violating rules on organized team activities and docked them two OTA days in 2022. In September, the NFL Players Association announced it was launching an investigation after Meyer acknowledged to reporters team their team factored vaccination status into cut-down decisions. The state of that investigation is unclear. 23 of 24 players cut were vaccinated. And of course, there were the October viral videos, which were shot in the days following a 24-21 loss to the Bengals, dropping the Jaguars to 0-4. Meyer apologized publicly to the team, telling players days later that he had too much to drink and acted like a bleeping idiot. Khan released a somewhat tepid statement of support for Meyer, calling his conduct inexcusable and adding, I appreciate Urban's remorse, which I believe is sincere. Now he must regain our trust and respect. That will require personal commitment from Urban to everyone who supports, represents, or plays for our team. I am confident he will deliver. The Jaguars actually won two of their next four games, ending a 20-game franchise losing streak and giving Meyer his first NFL win, but they have not won since. And signs of progress have faded. With a high-profile coach who, along with Lawrence, was supposed to bring back fans to TIAA Bank Stadium, the Jaguars currently rank 30th in attendance. And that is the dysfunction of the Jacksonville Jaguars that will likely cost Urban Meyer his job and will also create an interesting little stir over the next couple weeks as we start to have that drama there. Even if Urban doesn't get fired at the end of this year, it seems pretty clear that The reputational damage is done. I don't think Urban Meyer is going to coach again after this because I don't think there's a job low enough that he would take given where his reputation stands and how going back to college would look very different, including in the changing landscape of college football. 
regardless of how this ends up, I'm pretty confident this ends with Urban getting fired by the Jaguars. If not in January, then too late, months and months later, uh, in the middle of next season, probably how this one is going to end, because it seems like the damage has officially been done for about 12 weeks and really nine months, but more spe- as they outlined in the de- in the story, assistant coaches leaving, players wanting to leave. Marvin Jones obviously is not going to be on the team next year if he's that unhappy. James Robinson, as we talked about, getting set to trade him. And if Urban stays, it'll just be to delay the inevitable and waste another season for the Jaguars. A season, by the way, that is super duper important because of the development of Trevor Lawrence and getting Trevor Lawrence on his rookie contract whole lot of dysfunction from the top on down for the Jacksonville Jaguars and boy doesn't that sound familiar after the last 20 years of my life literally my entire lifetime except for one magical season where they made the AFC championship dysfunction in Jacksonville it's the name of the game New sponsor alert here on the Take It Easy podcast. It is Lightbox Jewelry. Using cutting-edge technology and innovative techniques, Lightbox Jewelry has cracked the science of sparkle, creating the highest quality lab-grown diamonds that you can find at a light price of just $800 per carat. Lightbox lab-grown diamonds are the gift they'll never want to take off, priced so they won't have to. Visit lightboxjewelry.com to add sparkle to your holiday shopping. That's lightboxjewelry.com. Lightbox Diamonds. Never a dull moment. I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but we're getting to it now. Let's talk about Formula One. Because the Formula One championships are at 5 in the morning, which means a couple hours after this podcast is going to be released. So if you want to know what happened in the Formula One championship and get breakdowns and analysis, there are definitely better places to go than this. But I just want to talk about Formula One from a macro perspective because I found this super duper interesting over the past couple months and now leading to the championship on Sunday, which is niche sports, which are pretty much defined for me as sports that are not the national sports in America, like football, basketball, even baseball still to a certain extent, even though baseball is moving more niche with younger demographics. Basically, sports that are not football and basketball are niche sports where there's so many sports that exist and also just so many entertainment options. Like there's a whole generation of people that can grow up and not be sports fans. There's just a plethora of entertainment options where you don't have four or five channels and those channels are going to have live sports on them back in the 80s, 90s, 70s, etc. The rise of cable television and now the rise of streaming services mean there is an infinite amount of content available for your consumption if that's what you choose to do with leisure time. And so you can grow up without being a sports fan. There are tons of alternatives now in the content game. But for people who are dedicated sports fans and you don't follow one of the national sports, you usually pick and choose niche sports that you really enjoy because there's just way too many sports to be able to watch all of them. You, you could try and watch baseball, hockey, college football, college basketball, uh, uh, golf, tennis, 
Even NASCAR falls into there. You could get really into bowling if you want. Uh, Darts competitions are a big deal over in Britain. That's a huge niche sport in there. Um, You could go to some of those Olympic sports like swimming, etc. UFC, MMA, boxing. Uh, I'm just trying to list as many off the top of my head as I can. The point being, there's way too many sports to be able to follow all of them. I couldn't do that even when we were coming out of the pandemic and I didn't have sports for four months. Trying to follow basketball playoffs, baseball playoffs, uh, U.S. Open golf championships. Uh, we learned this after the pandemic is that the, and NFL season starting. There's just way too many sports. And, and I didn't even mention European soccer or the MLS championship, which happened yesterday. There's just way, shout out to New York City FC for winning the MLS championship. There's just way too many sports to be able to follow all of them. Here, we, we predominantly do football, basketball, baseball. Occasionally, douchey hockey guy will make an appearance to talk about how the New York Islanders are headed for the Stanley Cup this year or how the Florida Panthers have put together a team that has one of the best records in hockey or how the Carolina Hurricanes have been dominating their division this year or how this might be the year for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Occasionally, douchey hockey guy will make an appearance, but all of that And college football, we get really into March Madness for one month of the season. Uh, Occasionally, we'll dabble in other sports when need be, but like this, what we're going to talk about today, and soccer and and all of this. So all of that to say, there's so many sports that it's impossible to follow all of them. So people pick and choose niche sports. And every now and then, niche sports have a big ballooning moment. There's a moment where they grow in popularity because of some confluence in events. I remember watching the documentary on Joey Chestnut and I forgot the other guy's name now, Kobayashi. Joey Chestnut and Kobayashi in professional eating and how Major League Eating formed a league after the 4th of July hot dog contest and they got a $20 million contract from ESPN in the 2000s. A cornhole formed a league and got a contract from ESPN to broadcast their events for a couple years. Drone racing was a big deal for a little bit. They got a one-year contract with ESPN to, to create programming. Like Niche sports have these bumps and they get established in the mainstream because what defines a sport is simply having an audience. If you have a demand for a sport or an event... That becomes a sport. The reason that football and ba- and basketball are the most popular national sports is because they have national appeal. They have gigantic fan bases that extend nationally. Baseball has this too. Baseball is just increasingly moving more and more niche during the regular season, and then the playoffs matter on a national scale for people who are baseball fans, which it's like a niche sport, but it's like the, the biggest of the niche sports at this point. And Formula One was very much a niche sport before what's happened in the last two years, which is what we're going to talk about here uh, a lot. Because the thing that develops sports is an audience, and the thing that draws audiences in is stakes and storylines. And there has been a weird confluence of events in Formula One that I find so fascinating that really the only thing I can compare it to in terms of a big blow-up in such a short amount of time is what happened with the Major League eating Joey Chestnut and Kobayashi rivalry that existed there. Is it a moment in time? Yes, it was a moment in time, but it's something that drew people in. Uh, Women's tennis is another good example of this with the Williams sisters uh, capturing a moment in time. Tiger Woods in golf capturing a moment in time by creating stakes 
and storylines that people could follow and drawing casual fans in. And that's that same phenomena is happening right in front of our eyes with Formula One. And so Formula One had two confluences of events before. Not like to put the sport on the map, but to draw in new fans, which is really, really hard in the content age where all sports leagues are losing viewership, except the NFL. Everyone except the NFL, all the niche sports are losing viewership. Wrestling is in a in a fight for their lives right now, and the WWE and AEW creating competition there, but they draw in more and more fans. It's really hard to keep people together, especially when there's so many options available now. And Formula One has seen in the last two years 50% increases in their viewership on ESPN at weird times, too. Here's ESPN's press release on the viewership ratings from last month. So, in 2019, Formula One had 672,000 viewers on average for an ESPN broadcast. For, for reference, first take on ESPN has something like 160,000 viewers a day. So if for context there, they're doing very well. It's a global thing, especially in, in Europe and Australia. Formula One is a bigger deal and they have, you know, Grand Prix in Saudi Arabia and the Middle East and things of these sorts. So Formula One is a bigger deal globally and ESPN gets that viewership there. But 672,000 for a weekly event is a pretty good number, like enough where ESPN kept renewing their deals with Formula One for, I think, about 10 years now. I think Formula One has been, at least for as long as I can remember as a child, Formula One was on at, you know, sec- 6 in the morning on ESPN2 for just some weird reason. They would put programming there because all the, all the competitions would go on in Europe. And so all the competitions would be like the London games where it's like 6 in the morning, uh, 7 in the morning, 8 in the morning on the West Coast. But Formula One's been on ESPN for as long as I can remember it's just got the, you know, 2019, 672,000 viewers. Pandemic year 2020, they had 608,000 viewers. Now, everyone lost viewership in the pandemic a little bit. Formula One's was only about a 14% decrease as compared to like the NBA having a 30% decrease. But 608,000 people watch Formula One in 2020. 672,000 watch Formula One in 2019. In 2021, the average viewership for a Formula One race is 947,000 people. In one year, year over year, 50% increase in Formula One viewership. And for the championship race that has probably happened by the time you're listening to this, they're expecting over 2 million people to watch the Formula One championship again at 5 a.m. on the West Coast and 8 a.m. on on the East Coast in the United States. Over 2 million people in America sometime between 5 a.m. and 8 a.m. are going to watch the Formula One championship, which is nearly triple what their triple and quadruple what their averages were for the season two years ago and last year during the pandemic. So where how does ESPN in a dying breed of cable television, in an increasing market where everyone is losing viewership on events and putting Formula events at Formula One events at really, really early times, how is ESPN getting double, triple, quadruple viewership year over year in Formula One? It is because Formula One has had two massive confluences event 
confluence of confluences of events that have created the two things that matter more than anything in sports. And we say it all the time. We've said it already once on this podcast. We should make this one of our drinking games along with saying regression to the mean and I'm working through the Belichick book, which means if you're playing at home, you need to take two shots right now because I said both of the things for the drinking game. And this will be a third one. Stakes and storylines. If you can put stakes on events, not stakes like meat, stakes like results that matter and create storylines, you can generate interest in your sport. And Formula One had two big confluences of events that created stronger stakes and storylines and drew in not just sports fans or people looking for niche sports, people who were not watching sports at all before formula one like formula one is their foray into sports and that's really really hard to do in an era where again you don't have to watch sports anymore because there's so many entertainment options available on streaming services and tons of cable television networks etc etc so here are the two confluences of events we'll start with number one the netflix show that formula one produced over the pandemic Formula One got a deal with Netflix to produce a television show. Uh, it was, ba- I mean, Netflix is obviously not te- technically television, but Formula One's Netflix show ends up getting produced for a first season. It's called Drive to Survive. Uh, it was created in 2019, but during the pandemic, it became super popular. Kind of similar to like a Hard Knocks style idea where they get like behind the scenes access two Formula One races and you generate, you know, interest in the storylines going into a season and you get to know the people in the races and things like this and they travel back and forth. It's again, the best example I can give you is Hard Knocks-esque. It's Hard Knocks, but it has like an entertainment value behind it. It's that Netflix is trying to sell this more as like a competition than it is trying to It's selling it as a competition more than it is just following the storylines of training camp. But it's like the the behind-the-scenes access type of idea. And so Hard Knocks, or well, Formula One's Hard Knocks version, uh, goes throughout the season. I guess it's like the all-in things with, um, you know, like Amazon used to do. They did one of these in 2019 and then a second season in 2020, and it was extremely popular during the COVID-19 pandemic where it it becomes one of those like weird trending things on Twitter where they get really, really invested in the Formula One competition. And so during the pandemic, people are following this 2019 season and then they follow the pandemic year coming out this year. Um, and, it, and it's a hugely successful program on Netflix, hugely successful. Um, I know people t- who I didn't even know were into sports, but when I tell them I'm sports, they're just like, do you know about the Formula One show? I'm like, I know the Netflix show existed. I've seen part of the Netflix show. But they've now gone three seasons in. They followed them in 2018, 2019, 2020, and they're going to produce a new one for 2021. And so this Netflix show brought in people who were not looking for sports, but it's like, oh, this is something trending on Netflix. Let's see what this is. And then it's a, it's a really well done program. People get invested in the stakes and storylines of Formula One. So that's the first thing that helped out there very much was they got a Netflix show back in 2018, 2019, and then during the pandemic, it became super popular following the 2019 
And then the season three was the 2020 season that came out not too long ago. But season two, the 2019 season, was the one that really drew people in. I think the Netflix show can account for part of the reason why Formula One's ratings did not dip as significantly during the pandemic as other sports leagues did. Again, we were talking about the dip from 2019 to 2020 in average viewership from 672,000 to 608,000. That comes out ballpark to about 14%. Well, if you look at Major League Baseball, they had 29% dips in ratings during the pandemic. NBA, 30% dips in ratings during the pandemic. It was a weird year. People were doing other things and had other priorities. They were playing the championships at weird times, and there were a lot of competing sporting events. So Formula One doesn't have that same fall that other sports leagues have, non-football category. Football's ratings go up because it's football, but every other niche sport sees a fall in ratings. Uh, I don't know the NHL numbers, but I know obviously the NHL followed the same trend that every niche sports league had, which is viewership goes down because things are being held at weird times. U.S. Open, uh, Bryson DeChambeau wins by a route, and it has lower viewership than I think all but like eight U.S. Opens in the last 50 years. And so all these viewership numbers are down, but Formula One kind of doesn't fall that far. And I can't say with certainty it's because of the Netflix show, but I like to, uh, I, I would assume a cause correlation possibility here. It's possible that the popularity of the Netflix show during the pandemic in 2020 brought people back to the 2020 season when they the Netflix show just for context so season two was 2019 season they produced 2019 season after the year ends release it in 2020 on Netflix it's 10 10 episodes it's like a tv show and then they did the 2020 season they it was played out this time last year in in October November December uh you know <laughs> leading into football on Sundays on ESPN2 they did it October, November, December, and then uh, produced the Netflix show and released it, I think, in June of 2021. So like six months after the season ends, they produce and release the Netflix show. So it, during the pandemic in 2020, people got really invested in the 2019 season, then maybe become inclined to watch the 2020 season as it starts undergoing, as it starts going. And then season three comes around and it's super popular again on Netflix and more people get drawn in. So that's the popularity of the Netflix show. The second big thing that helped drive gigantic Formula One ratings this year is the storyline of Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen. And these two guys, I cannot tell you anything about their actual races, but I can tell you the storyline that has drawn people in because Lewis Hamilton is in his 30s. As a Formula One driver, he has won seven Formula One championships, dominated the sport for a decade, brought the sport into national popularity as it moves to ESPN, brings the sport into national popularity with the Formula One racing in Europe, wins seven championships. He is the sport and the sport is him for about a decade. I wouldn't say like Tiger Woods-esque, but something similar to that where he's dominated the sport for 13 years, and he's won seven championships in the sport. Universal best driver in the sport for a decade. Max Verstappen starts racing in Formula One when he is 17 years old, and he ends up winning as a 17-year-old and being the youngest person to ever win in Formula One 
uh, youngest person to ever win a race in Formula One, and now he's 24 years old. And after he's he's the young prodigy in the sport, 24 years old, and he's on his way uh, to winning a Formula One championship and taking down uh, Lewis Hamilton. There, you know, Hot Shot is now entering his prime and is on his way to trying to win his first championship uh, in Formula One. And if you want to go all the way back here to who has won the most recent Formula One championships, it is in. In uh, Max Verstappen's career, it is 2015 Lewis Hamilton, 2016 Nico Rosberg from Germany, then it is 2017 Lewis Hamilton, 2018 Lewis Hamilton, 2019 Lewis Hamilton, 2020 Lewis Hamilton. Lewis Hamilton has won six of the last seven Formula One championships, and now he is in a deadlock tie with Max Verstappen. This is the giant of giants in the sport. This is you know, I said Tiger Woods-esque, call it Tiger Woods in that sport, drawing people in a universally, you know, Hall of Fame, greatest racer in the history of the sport, dominating ahead of everyone, and a young hotshot kid, 24 years old, sixth year in Formula One, trying to win his first championship, and by the way, has a real shot of winning the championship. Max Verstappen won the pole for the first race by about two two tenths of a second. So Max Verstappen is going to get to start in the one position. Lewis Hamilton is going to get to start in the two. They're so far ahead of everyone else that it is just him, Verstappen, against Lewis Hamilton for the championship. They are, you know, neck and neck themselves. No one else is even close, although there's a Baby Lando, which is his nickname. But Baby Lando is someone who is well-liked in this competition. Like maybe a third person, someone, a, a darling of the Netflix show. And Verstappen and Hamilton have created a storyline in the sport that is drawing these new people who are attracted to the sport and keeping them because it is super fascinating to have stakes on a championship and a championship pursuit because Lewis Hamilton's trying to win five championships in a row, eight in his career, 13-year career, trying to win an eighth championship, seventh championship in eight years, five in a row. The stakes of that and the, the top of the sport, and young kid trying to come for his stuff. Prodigy kid. You have the the giant of the sport and the prodigy of the sport, both in their primes, battling it out for a championship. I don't know if I'm doing Formula One propaganda here, but just trying to emphasize the fact that it is stakes and storylines that draw people into this. And it's a perfect combination of that, plus the Netflix show launching popularity for non-sports fans. The Netflix show draws in a different audience than people who are going to turn on ESPN at 8 a.m. on a Sunday and see what's going on in Formula One. This is a different audience who is actively seeking out ESPN2, ESPN at 8 in the morning, doing Twitter lives and YouTube live streams and podcasts about Formula One. I've seen three podcasts that I really like, the Shutdown Fullcast, the Lebetard Show with Jessica Smetana being the Formula One person, and the No Dunks people on YouTube. Basketball, college football, sports satire, college football, national sports radio, and uh, and NBA. College football, national sports radio, and an NBA podcast, all doing Formula One content because people have really gravitated toward this sport in weird niches. And again, you have people who are on Netflix, not actively seeking out sports, watching Formula One, and then seeking it out on ESPN to the tune of viewership increases at over 50% 
year over year in the sport. Formula One has had a perfect, perfect confluence of events and marketing that has brought their niche sport to a much larger niche in a very short amount of time. And this does not happen even in the age of cable television and ESPN blowing up and buying contracts with Major League Eating in the 2000s and doing contracts with the NHL and doing contracts with baseball and the National Women's Soccer League and the WNBA and the tennis championships, college football playoff deals. You don't see niche sports have these percentage blowups in such a short amount of time and it is a perfect moment in time event that has worked out wonderfully for Formula One in driving up their viewership, driving up their interest in the sport and hitting a broader audience. And by the way, this is something every single sports league is dreaming of right now. Everything they've been trying to do is how can we expand to a larger audience of people who are not watching sports? How can we tap into an economy and a market of people who are not watching sports. Because if more people are watching, you can sell advertisements. You can sell merchandise. People will want to go to your races. What has Formula One done about this? They're coming to Miami next year for a race. They're coming to America to race Formula One. Why? Because people in America have gotten really, really interested in Formula One. Usually they race in France, Belgium, Saudi Arabia, Monaco Grand Prix in Spain and Italy and England. It's a sport predominantly in Europe that they're bringing to America next year. I think two locations. I know Miami has one. I don't know where the other one is going to be, but they're bringing the sport to a more global audience than it was before. Not like the sport wasn't legitimate before. Again, it's been on ESPN for 20 years. As long as I've been alive, it's been on at 8 a.m. before football on a November day. But they are getting a larger audience that every sports league wants to capture because they want to capture that economy of how can we stay relevant by attracting people who don't normally watch sports. NFL has done an amazing job at this over the past decade, and that's why they're now the one king sport. NBA has tried. Baseball has failed. <laughs> NHL has failed. Tennis has tried. Golf has tried relatively successfully to tap into a market of people who don't usually watch the sport because it keeps the sport healthy for years and years to come. Formula One has captured a perfect moment in time, and it's leading to the sport growing year over year in a way that just doesn't happen. The only precedent I have for it is what happened in Major League Eating from one 4th of July contest and the, the rivalry between Joey Chestnut and Kobayashi because I watched a documentary on it one time. Tiger Woods is another close example to this, but it's a different type of of storyline. It's not one person running rough shot over the sport. That did that only did so much. It's now the rivalry between Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton that is drawing people into this sport with real stakes, real storylines and a really big interest of people getting ready to watch a championship between two people in a dead tie at the top of the sport. Dead tie, one race, win or go home. You cannot get any larger stakes than that. One race for a championship. Whoever comes in first wins, whoever comes in second loses. It's a Super Bowl type event on Sunday that is probably already finished by the time you're getting to this. A culmination of a year that is really, really weird with the growth of Formula One. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for stopping in here to the Take It 
Easy podcast here on Wired Up episode 98. We appreciate each and every one of you for stopping in. Maybe to figure out who won the Formula One championship. Was it Max Verstappen or was it Lewis Hamilton? Will I watch on Sunday? Maybe I will. Haven't watched any Formula One since I was about 11, 12 years old. And it just happened to be on ESPN2 before Sunday NFL Countdown. Haven't seen it in many, many years. But I might just have to watch to see what happens between Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen in a one-race winner-go-home championship. That is the stake and storyline that will draw me into your niche sport and make me willing to commit 30 minutes to a podcast segment on Formula One because it is really, really interesting, and it's something I've been looking for a spot to talk about for about a a week or so, but really going back months because it's weird how much people really, really love Formula One now, including people who I know personally, who were not sports fans and still are not sports fans, except for watching the Formula One championship and the race between Verstappen and Hamilton and the Netflix show, which again, if you have Netflix, maybe check out season three of that show. You might make yourself a fan more than I can by talking about 30 minutes of of Formula One propaganda. So with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, take it easy. We'll talk to you again tomorrow nfl monday and memes of the weekend podcast tomorrow take it easy everybody enjoy the formula one championship that has probably already finished